The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, shalom everyone. Good evening. A real pleasure to be here and thank you, Ray, so much for the opportunity and the uh, kind introduction. You know, uh, I really important for me to start by, before anything else, just uh, really thanking, thanking you at Maranatha, the Maranatha family, for um, praying for our people all those years, for standing with us, for uh, supporting ministries that tell us about Yeshua. I truly feel privileged and um, I want to express that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Now, uh, I want to talk to you today. Let's see. Where is it? What do we have there? Aha. Uh-huh. So I want to talk to you eventually about uh, a very special passage in the Hebrew Bible from Zechariah chapter 3. Okay, and Zechariah chapter 3 is, well, I'll tell you a little more about it in a moment, but it's one of the most amazing prophecies in the Hebrew Bible about the Messiah. But before I go there, before I get there, I want to share with you just a little bit on what's going on with the Jewish people, particularly in the last 100 years or so. So I want to give you a short, a very short lesson in demographics. Okay, this is just the 100 years because of, because of time. So um, in 1939, just before, before World War II, there are about 16 and a half million Jewish people throughout the world. About 10 million of them are in Europe. Europe is the center of the Jewish world at the time. Of course, um, the Holocaust has come, oh by the way, something that is not often talked about or rarely talked about is that in, in Europe at that time, before World War II, among the 10 million, there are several tens of thousands, some say as many as a quarter of a million Jewish believers in Jesus. This is before World War II. And they're spread all over Europe, both Eastern Europe and Western Europe. And of course, the, when the Nazi regime comes, uh, European Judaism is erased. The six million are murdered. By the way, among the Jewish believers in Europe at that time is my wife's family. Uh, her story is a lot more interesting, unfortunately for you. I'm here, not her. She's also much prettier. But um, the point is that after the Holocaust, in 1948, when the State of Israel is established, there are about 10 to 10 and a half million people, Jewish people, in the entire world. Now, in Israel at the time, when the state of Israel is established, there are less than 10%, less than a million Jews are in Israel when the state of Israel is established. European Judaism is erased, and the Jewish world, or the Jewish world center, is moving to America. There's about five million Jewish people then and now in America. Uh, When the state of Israel is established, there are 23, 23 Jewish believers in Jesus in the entire country. So very, very, very few. Of course, there's no gathering of Jewish believers. Um, There are some churches of of, uh, missionaries at the time and so on. Jumping ahead 73 years, we just celebrated our 73rd day of independence. 
Today, in, um, in the entire world, there are around 13.5 million Jewish people. 13.5 million. Of them, 7.2 million reside in Israel. More than half of all the Jews in all the world reside in Israel. Let me say it a different way. There are more Jewish people residing in Israel today than in the rest of the world combined. And why I'm making such a big deal of it is because, you know, through, throughout church history, this was unthinkable, unfathomable, seemed absolutely impossible, and, you know, God must have meant it metaphorically in the scripture when he said he's going to do it. But guess what? When God says something, he actually means it. And so that's what, that's what it is now. And this situation, by the way, has not been like that since the time of Yeshua, Jesus himself. Now, not only that, but the center of the Jewish world is moving in the last 30 years from America back to Israel. In many, many ways. Again, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into it. But here's the really important thing. The number and not just numbers, but the presence of the Jewish believers in Jesus in Israel has grown pretty significantly. So from 23 uh, believers in 1948, in uh, 2020, there are over 30,000. And by the way, I think that's a very conservative uh, measure. But around 30,000 believers uh, gathering in 300 congregations and churches throughout the land. So just tremendous amount of growth. And you know, uh, I've met Yeshua almost 30 years ago, and at that time, I was shortly after that, I've, I've become a student at the university, and I would talk to my friends, I talked to, to you know, people on campus, and I'm telling them that I'm a believer in Jesus, and every time I'd get the same response. Every time, when, uh, never failed. They look at me, they hear the way I speak Hebrew, they realize I'm a Jew, and they tell me, well, how come you talk to us about Jesus? You're, you're a Jew, you know, Jews, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus, so what, what, what are you, what's going on? Every time. So we've never heard about anything like this. Now today the situation is not only numerically different, but it's also qualitatively different. And I want to tell you about this in just a second. The point is, Jewish people now get to hear that there's more and more Jew Jewish people that believe in Jesus, in Yeshua. Let's see. Yes. No. This. Now the qualitative difference. You've seen my short video. As Ray said, we produced over 100 of those in English. Believe it or not, that's a very small part of what we do. We, the, the majority of what we do is in Hebrew. But here's the really important qualitative difference that's happening among Jewish people today. Most of the testimony to Jewish people today is happening by other Jewish people. Testimony to Jesus, that is. Why is it so important? Because since the Reformation, when people started reading their Bibles, you know, different groups read that the gospel is to the Jew first, and they would come to Jewish people trying to share the gospel. I mean, great hearts. The problem is that there's very painful history of the church and the Jewish people. That's one. Two, you know, they didn't look like us. They didn't talk like us. They didn't know our, our customs. And so, oh, the irony, the Jewish people received the missionaries and said they tried to force a foreign god upon us. Oh, the irony, again. So today, you know, we tell our people about God. 
we tell our people about the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. And we tell our family, we tell our friends, we tell our neighbors, you know, I only have an Israeli passport. I don't have any other passport. So they can tell me, go back to where you come from. And say, that's, that's where I, you're stuck with me, in other words. And so the dynamic has changed. It's not us and them, it's us and us. And, um, you know, uh, those kind of videos, like you've seen, um, about 10 years ago, we have realized that the public square where people gather is not out there on the streets anymore. I think COVID has showed it to us pretty dramatically. The public square is here now. And so about 10 years ago, this is good and bad, but that, that's what it is. Uh, the, the, so we started producing those kind of videos about 10 years ago. And uh, so let me share with you a couple of brief stories and numbers. So Israel is a state of nine million people. Our Hebrew content has been viewed over 36 million times. And in this last year alone, you know, with COVID, of course, the proximity to death, thoughts about dying, you know, the fear factor, a lot of people, and, and people spending a lot of time on the internet, you know, this last year alone, 6.3 million views to our Hebrew testimonials, by the way, besides testimonials, we have a lot of apologetics and, and uh, other kinds of material in Hebrew. And so our total viewership has been over the last 10 years or so has been, particularly the last five years, has been more than 170 million views. And um, as uh, Ray mentioned, we don't, we, we're not only, amen, praise God, it's, it really is him. And it's not just Jewish people, but it's also Arab people. You know, in Israel, 20% of the population are Arabs, and we're surrounded by, by a billion Arabs. Unfortunately, you know, you know the, the, the sons of Isaac, sons of Ishmael, we don't really get along. And if you read the news, uh, there's missiles going on right now. But uh, we really felt that God is leading us to reach out to not only the Arabs in Israel, but throughout the Middle East. So we have testimonials of Muslims that have come to know the Lord and a lot of teaching and apologetics. I want to share a wonderful picture with you. That's the second story. One of my favorite pictures uh, happened a couple of years ago. I'm sorry, here it is. It uh, took place in the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it's the uh, baptism of those four guys that you see there. Um, you know, it's kind of representative of what's going on uh, all over the country over and over again. So I'm the old guy on the right. The guy next to me is one of Israel's surf champions. I don't know if you know that surfing is really big in Israel, so he became a believer in Jesus. Uh, the, the guy next to him is a, a very astute young Arab businessman. The guy next to him is a, uh, a Jewish fitness instructor, and the guy on the left is uh, another Jewish guy that's uh, a, a, you know, in, in private business. And each one of them have come to know the Lord in a unique way, and for each one of them, the interesting thing was that you know, part of their journey of faith included visiting our websites and our, all of our um, electronic or digital outreach. And Ray mentioned to you that we also operate the only Bible college in the country. And so, again, just a, a picture worth, worth a thousand uh, words. And so, can you tell who in that picture, well, let me, let me, I'll give, it, give you a hint, okay? These are some of the senior pastors in the entire country of Israel. They're graduates of our college. They had a, a special program for pastors. But you need to guess, look at the faces, try to guess who's a Jew and who's an Arab. Can you tell? Now we're all kind of, you know, darkish and we all kind of look alike. You know, it's, it's kind of impossible. To, it's a mixed picture. You're going to have to take my word for it. But uh, really, it is a mixed picture. So 
you know, we get to celebrate our one new man in the Messiah, in Christ, on a weekly basis. So just a tremendous, tremendous blessing this way. And um, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to share this as a, as a brief introduction before uh, we go to Zechariah. And so let me do that now. So Zechariah, you know, one of my favorite prophets in the Hebrew Bible, and I hope after today he'll be yours as well. His name means God remembers. He was from an important priestly family, actually a leader of an important priestly family, and God called him to serve him as a young man. Now, Zechariah's prophecy is, is special is, is in, in several particular ways, and um, you know, he's one of the, the uh, latest prophets. He's a contemporary of Haggai and also Malachi. And, and interestingly enough, the Jewish sages call Zechariah the summary of all the prophets. What they mean by that is that Zechariah is taking themes from the former prophets and he kind of um, uses them both, both in terms of idioms, verbal idioms, but also he takes the idea and he kind of explores it even further. And um, Zechariah, you know, I think God has really used him to distill, as it were, the prophecies about the Messiah. He's talking about um, the fact that Messiah is going to be given or uh, taken for 30 pieces of silver. He's the shepherd that is uh, smitten and, uh, and, uh, uh, for, the, for the flock. He talks quite a bit about the mystery of the divine nature of the Messiah and so on and so on. Um, Zechariah, by the way, is quoted in the, in the New Testament more than 40 times. So what I would like to do today is look at chapter 3. It's a little bit of out of context, but I'll explain the context in, in a couple of sentences. And it talks about the branch of God. Um, so let's start. Okay, maybe one more word of, of uh, introduction that the first eight chapters of Zechariah, I'm sorry, first six chapters of Zechariah contain eight visions that are all given to Zechariah in a single night. That's, that's a lot. Again, as a young man, I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like him meeting God in this way. And uh, those eight different prophecies all have a theme, and the theme is the Messiah. It kind of points to him. And so we're going to look at chapter 3, which contains the fourth vision of that night. Okay, so I'm going to read. I'm going to, we're going to go by, uh, verse by verse and see what, what Zechariah saw. Then he, he's talking about God, Zechariah is talking about God, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So God is showing Zechariah a vision. In that vision, he sees Joshua, son of Josadak. He's the high priest of the day. And, um, you know, as, as such, he has the highest spiritual position under the Mosaic covenant. Joshua, we know about him. We read about him in Ezra and Nehemiah and also uh, a little bit here in Zechariah. Um, he's from the family of Aaron. He comes back as the priestly leader together with the, with the Rubabel, who is from the descendancy of David. So they come back from Babylon. Um, and Joshua 
is standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, Zechariah is talking about him extensively in the first chapter, is the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Messiah. We see the angel of the Lord throughout the Hebrew Bible. And um, the interesting expression here in particular is standing before. To stand before expresses um, subservience to someone. In other words, some sort of an attendance upon someone that's greater from you. And so who can the high priest, you know, the high spiritual authority stand before? It's the Messiah himself. We see this expression, we find this expression of standing before uh, with Joseph before Pharaoh, with Joshua before Moses, David before Saul, and so on and so on. So um, the, he's standing before someone greater than he, and it's very important, Joshua is not standing as a private person. He's standing there as the high priest. Now the high priest is carrying upon his shoulder, you may remember this, upon his shoulder and upon his breast, in the breastplate, the names of all the tribes of Israel. In other words, he's the representative of the nation of Israel. So in a sense, as we'll see as it develops, it's a judgment kind of a setting, and Joshua is there being judged, but really he's representing the entire nation of Israel. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of the scene. Now, there's, there's another figure there, and that's the fallen angel that we call Satan, the enemy of our souls. He's standing on the right hand of Joshua and accuses him. In Psalm 109, verse 6, you don't have to go there, we read, uh, the, the, the psalm says, appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. So the right hand, it changes actually in the scriptures, but uh, on this uh, situation is the prosecutor, is the accuser. You know, we're not told what Satan is saying. What's the actual accusation? But, um, you know, we see enough about devil in the scriptures that we can figure it out. You know, he's kind of pointing at him and says, says to God, this is what you choose? He's not worthy. I mean, look at him. Look at them. How they behave. What they say. How they live. Them you choose. These are the ones that you choose. And um, that's, uh, that's the nature. That's the nature of, of Satan. That's what he does. That he, what he did then. That's what he does by the way, against us on a continual basis. And he's very good at manipulating our own conscience to believe kind of a thing. But um, we'll see that also what Satan is referring to is expressed in the outwear in whatever um, Joshua is wearing. We'll get to that in just a moment. So it goes to verse two. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So here's a bit of good news. I mean, that's actually fantastic news, not just good news. The enemy may accuse, but it's not within his power to condemn. He may accuse, but he cannot condemn. And the really good news is, I mean, who's the defender? Who's our you know, the one that's speaking for us. It's not only the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ himself, but he's not just the defender, he's also the judge. He's also the one that 
you know, were accused before. And as we've seen, he uses he twice. He rebukes Satan two times. Um, and we read, you know, it reminds me of several verses in the scripture, but I'm particularly thinking of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 8 and 9. And that reads, again, you don't need to go there, but if you, do, if you want, it's Isaiah 58 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will condemn with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. Uh, the moth will eat them. In other words, you know, as it says in, in maybe a little simpler language in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father and also intercedes for us on our behalf. And that's exactly what we see here. And so, hallelujah, you know, praise God. And Satan is still trying to accuse each one of us, you know, saying that we are not worthy and so on. And it's true to the church of Christ. It's true also for still for the nation of Israel. Um, he's doing his best as the accuser of the brethren. Um, but there's this great encouragement and reminder for us. Greater than he is the one that is for us. And we are declared, as we'll see here in a very vivid way, um, cleared and clean. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, the last part of this verse, a brand plucked from the fire, is actually a prayer, a supplication kind of a thing, an intercession of the Messiah for his people. And actually, again, Zechariah is echoing the words of Amos, Amos uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, uh, talking about the um, uh, firebrand snatched from blaze. So the fire is in the immediate, in Zechariah's day, is the Babylonian exile. But generally it talks about uh, the continual uh, testing in fire of the nation of Israel, you know, that has no, has no similarity in human history. In this respect, the nation of Israel is the burning bush that is burning but is not consumed because of God's intercession, only, only because of that. Now, verse 3, super interesting. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy, filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, he as the angel, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to them, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Now, the English translation is kind of gentle here, just to be completely honest, because when he talks about filthy garments, it actually, forgive me, but it says his clothes were full of excrement, of feces. Okay, this is like the ultimate uncleanness. This is the high priest, I remind you again. So he's like the ultimate uncleanness, super humiliated, before God, and it symbolizes the, the detrimental moral and you know, general lowly state of the nation of Israel. And again, reminds us, I think, of Isaiah's words in uh, chapter 64, verse 5, a very well-known verse where we read, For all, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So definitely reminds in that 
But still in Isaiah, in chapter 61, verse 10, God says, it is written, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Now, as I read this, it really reminds me. That, that, well, let me, let, me ask it, let, me, let me ask it as a question. Does it remind you of a parable from the New Testament? The prodigal son, right? Kind of takes off the dirty robes and put on the festal robes. And uh, God says to the angel, remove the filthy garments from him. And God says to Joshua, see, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So the high priest is dressed again in his high priestly attire, ready to fulfill his role. And we get to verse 4. <clears throat> and this is where the prophet, you know, Zechariah can't hold himself you know, quiet anymore, and it's kind of bursting into the conversation. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean, a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So the prophet, again, couldn't help himself. He sees the high priest being put out the priestly robes, and there's something missing. You know, the head covering of the high priest, it was a special, it, it's translated as turban, or uh, well, I don't know what's the, the word that you got in more modern uh, English uh, translation, but it's the high priest, the word in the Hebrew is the high priestly head covering. And it, had, it was a white, it had white, it had a golden plate, plate in the forehead that says, holy unto the Lord. So that's what... Um, uh, Zechariah is referring to, and they put it on him. So now that signifies the full equipment, as it were, full attire of the high priestly function. He's ready to, um, he's ready to take his role. And this symbolic transaction of removal of the filthy garments and putting on the clean garments now um, is followed by a solemn charge and actually glorious, absolutely glorious, prophetic um, prof uh, messages about the Messiah himself. Verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access amongst those who are standing here. So the admonish is, is like a solemn, solemn testimony. God is saying this is really important. And God is making pretty wonderful uh, promises to, to Joshua in the priestly line here. It says, if you walk in my ways, um, then you'll perform my service. I mean, if you're going to walk before me righteously, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you serve me. You know, the living God. But it's based on this personal relationship. And you know, in the... In the New Testament, or the New Covenant, our high priest is the Messiah himself, Yeshua. Jesus himself is the high priest. But we are the priests. And in a sense, this is a, this is a, a calling for us. If we walk with the Lord, you know, then we will, he will, we will get to serve him. God is saying to um, Joshua, you will govern my house, Israel and the temple at the time, have charge of my courts for some responsibility in God's house, and God says, and I will grant you access among those who are standing here. So this is a promise of prominence, of greater things that are yet to come. Um, as we know, unfortunately, the priestly class, the descendants of Joshua, is what we read about, is those we read about in the New Testament called the Sadducees. That unfortunately were corrupted by the power. Power corrupts. 
You know, it really does. And it's um, very unfortunate, but here it's uh, the, you know, before that. And I think it's true for us as well. It's easy for us to get so accustomed to grace, as it were, that we almost forget who we stand before. So I don't know. I find that as a very, very helpful reminder personally. And so now come, you know, very concisely, but what I consider one of the greatest messianic prophecies in the entire Hebrew Bible. Verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, and uh, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So the first, you know, I'd say 60% of the verse is God saying to Joshua, listen, I'm going to tell you something so important, so central, you have to get it. And in fact, to make sure that you get it, those that sit before you, in other words, the spiritual leadership that is, I mean, the priests and whoever it is, later on it became the Sanhedrin, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, this is a very, very important message God is saying. And so I want to make sure that you get it and don't miss it out. It's very, very, very important. That's the first part of the verse. That's the majority of the verse, actually. And the, the men who are assigned is the, the important people, the leaders of the nation of Israel. And God says, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Very concise kind of a sentence, but extremely rich in content. And by the way, importantly, notice that God is talking to Joshua. He says, oh, Joshua, the high priest. So it's not just, again, Joshua, the private person. The, God is speaking to the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people. And when he says, when he says, um, uh, I will bring my servant, the term my servant is the same one that we find in the latter half, the main character in the book of Isaiah. The servant of God, we meet him in chapter 42. We meet, in, we meet him in chapter 49. We meet him in chapter 52 and 53. He is the one that's not, uh, again, I don't know how to say it in English. He's not going to broken the smoking reed. Is, is, that, is that how you say it? And he's the one that's taken upon himself. You know, we, we've all have gone as, uh, astray as sheep. And he's taken upon himself the iniquity over all. That's the servant. And the spiritual leadership of Israel, no one recognizes this title. When God says, my servant, they know, oh, he's referring to, to the one that Isaiah described a couple of hundred years ago. And to make sure they don't miss it out, he says, my servant, the branch. The branch is another messianic title. We find it first in Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2. He's called the branch of God. Then in Jeremiah 23 verse 5, he's called the righteous branch. And finally in Jeremiah 33 verse 15, to make sure we're not going to miss any of it out, is called David's righteous branch, whose name is Yahweh, our righteousness. To make sure we, don't, we understand that the branch is not just the branch of David, not just the branch of God, in other words, son of God, son of David, but he's also God, our righteousness. He's the living God himself. That's the same Messiah that has incarnated, took a form of flesh, 
and came to this earth. So God has taken great pains, as it were, to explain and to, to kind of sharpen it to make sure that the spiritual leaders of Israel will not miss it out. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to skip straight to verse 9. Verse 9, again, uh, I'm just amazed by God's patience and mercy with me more than anything. But, but even here, you know, uh, verse 9, God has continued to paint the pictures to the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he says, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now, the stone is another messianic title we find in the Hebrew Bible. We read in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. We read in Psalm 118, it's quoted in the New Testament, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So, again, when God is speaking about the servant, about the branch, about the stone, Based on former passages in the Hebrew Bible, the spiritual leaders of Israel need to understand this is the, this is the one. And Zechariah is tying it all together. And by the way, a couple of things about the stone, look at it, which are interesting. On a single stone, there are seven eyes. Interesting, um, interesting concept. He talks about God's omni. Uh, science. I mean, he knows everything. Seven is the number of completeness. He sees everything. Um, interestingly, Jewish commentators say that the seven eyes represents God's special attention, like positive attention and, and care for the stone, the, important of the sto importance of the stone in, in God's eyes. And God says, on this stone, I will engrave its inscription. I'm a very small stonesmith, but let's say you want to engrave a stone. What do you do? How do you, how do you engrave on a large stone? What do you do? So you take a chisel, you take a hammer, right, or a large nail, and you, you hit it. That's how you engrave it. And so God is portraying for us in a visual way what's he going to do with the servant, the branch, the stone. And to make sure we don't miss it, he says, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in, the sing in a single day. So that's the heart of the mission of the servant, the branch, the stone. Um, very unusual expression, by the way, in the Hebrew Bible, remove, removal of the sins. Because in the, in, in the Mosaic Covenant, sins were not removed. They were covered. Sins are covered. They're not removed. It's like a credit card. You know, you get the credit card, or you, now you stuck it, or you, you wave it, and whatever it is you do with it, and then it charges. But then comes the day of payment. You know, when my kids were younger, they would say, yeah, I mean, they would say, uh, Dad, buy me this. And I said, sometimes I would say, well, you know, I, I'm sorry, we can't afford it. And they said, well, you don't need money, you know, just, just use the credit card. You know, it's the same kind of thing. There's a payday. And so sins were covered, but eventually there's got to be this mechanism that removes it. Once and for all. And that's what God is talking about. And he's portraying to us the cross. He's portraying us the servant of God, the Messiah himself, who took upon himself a form of flesh and went to the cross on our behalf. So that's the um, removal of 
the iniquity of the land in a single day. We see that in, in Golgotha. So the chapter ends in verse 10. Now again, I, I hope you're catching the intensity of, of this passage and how patient God is. Um, you know, it, to me, it always reminds, you know, Jesus when he looks over Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times have I wanted? You know, I've, I've talked to you, I've, I've warned you, I've spoken to you like children so many times. So here we've seen Zechariah kind of taken Many of the, taking many of the central passages and kind of tying it all together. And he says, the result in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, when, you know, read in the Hebrew Bible, that, and I'm sorry, in the New Testament, that the blindness of the Jewish people, and as you know, our national leaders, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel in the times of Jesus have not, I mean, we have missed. We didn't recognize it. We didn't accept him on a national level. We didn't. That's the sad reality. But the New Testament says that in, it, it was in accordance to God's plan, in accordance to God's wisdom, because that way the message went to all the nations. And God says, you know, in, in Romans 11, he says, well, try to imagine speaking to us as believers in Yeshua. Try to imagine if in the blindness of the Jewish people there's been this blessing that went out to all the nation. Just try to imagine the measure of blessing that it will be when they are gathered. And Zechariah, by the way, talks about that in, in chapter 12 um, of, of, of uh, his book. So, you know, as you pray for the Jewish people, as you, uh, um, you know, a lot of Jewish people here in Southern California as well, as you meet your neighbors, your coworkers, your Jewish coworkers, whatever, point them out to Zechariah chapter three, and you probably need to explain it to them too, but um, amazingly rich content. So as I close, let me say this, kind of tie it all together, and I want to pray for you, but You know, we, we firmly believe that the West, because you love Israel, I mean, by the way, it's a divine thing. God has put this love in your heart. But the best way, we believe that the best way to bless Israel is for Jesus. So just continue to do as you do. Thank you again so much for praying for us and for hearing us out. If you do want to hear more about what we do, you can either uh, scan this thingy or go to one for Israel uh, org and... Um, Let's pray together. Lord our God, we're just uh, amazed by your, your mercy, your patience, your long-suffering with us. And we're so thankful that you've been so gracious to each one of us, that you've opened the eyes of our hearts, that we are your children. And even though the accuser accuses us and, and says that we are not worthy as we're not, but you say to him, you, you rebuke him, and you declare us clean. You declare us your sons and daughters. And we thank you that you are faithful and that you are merciful. And Father, I want to pray your blessing on each one in the Maranatha family. Just bless this place, the message that goes out from this place. Bless uh, Southern California and the United States. 
And Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and you said those who bless Israel, I will bless. So I pray this blessing on this place. And we thank you and we praise you in Yeshua's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.